Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode 29. It is Saturday, 1 April 2023. I'm Sarah and I am your host. Hey, we've got a lot on in this season two finale episode and I'm exhausted. So no self-indulgent intro monologue to waste your precious time this week. We're getting straight into it. What's in the briefcase this week? On Wednesday, 29 March, 2023, the stars aligned and I happened to be in Sydney at the same time as a rock star named Obama. And so, of course, I poured all of my money, my power and my wit into a tireless pursuit for an exclusive interview with someone I think we've all come to admire as a brilliant and stylish cultural icon. I may only be a simple lawyer, so I may not have very much money or any power and I only really have half of my wits but I found that when you dream big the world dreams along with you it's almost as if it will conspire to make your dreams come true so I threw caution and a security check to the wind and pressed on unfortunately as I would discover sometimes you really do need money power and wits and this was one of those times Plus, Michelle wasn't even doing any media. It would have just been Barack, so I totally lost interest. April Fools! What does that mean? It means I thought that was kind of funny and I'm an idiot. And like any good fool, I'm taking a break for April to rest, recharge, and maybe get more than three hours sleep a night. It was a lot of work getting those CPD claimable excess baggage episodes up for you to listen to. And though it was an absolute labor of love and the spirit is willing, the flesh is spongy and bruised. So girlfriend just needs a break for a couple of weeks. But fear not, because season three will return with more legal levity, shenanigans, and super awesome legal heroes at the end of April. So mark that in your big ships of the Navy calendar. And hey, let me know what you thought of Excess Baggage. It's retired for now, but tell me for next time, did you like it? Did you hate it? Should we do it again next CPD silly season? Or perhaps another cool thing to help you get your points up? I'd love to hear your feedback, so drop me an electronic mail at hello at briefcasepod.com. Ooh, that reminds me, it's time for another Smoochie Kiss shout out. I wanted to say a very special thank you to the Supreme Court Library of Queensland for being my home away from home this season and for hosting most of my in-person interviews. But most of all, I just wanted to say that the librarians there have got probably the best senses of humor I've come across in a long time. I mean, (laughs) they always get my references. See what I did there? Anyway, without further crappy joke, I give you the actual season two finale episode. It's a conversation with former family court judge and arbitration advocate, Colin Forrest. Colin joins us to demystify family law arbitration in an episode I'm calling everything you wanted to know about arbitrating a family property division, but were afraid to ask because you didn't know whether you should refer to the arbitrator as Colin, your honor or your majesty. What does one call you in conversation? What is it your honour? No, no, I prefer to be called Colin. Colin? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I find it a little bit embarrassing when people still refer to me as judge or oh. your honour. And why is that? 
Well, because I'm not a judge anymore. Yeah, right. I once was a judge. Can I ask what's the most surprising thing you learnt whilst you were a judge? That's a good question, Tara. I would have liked to have had a bit of notice for that one. The most surprising thing, let me think. The first thing that comes to mind is that uh, being a judge is <laughs> is not a, not all that uh, you think it's going to be yeah. when you're a barrister or solicitor, uh, potentially aspiring to be a judge. Yes, no, I can imagine. <laughs> it's just, and I've got to say, being a judge is just another job yes. as a lawyer. So what's a judge who is no longer a judge to do with themselves other than go back to the bar and immerse oneself in family law arbitration? Family law arbitration and mediation. So other forms of dispute resolution other than litigation. So I principally practice in mediation and arbitration in the family law space. Uh, yeah. What is arbitration for, for the uninitiated? Obviously, we learn about these things at uni, but yeah. by the time you come around to it in practice, yeah. what is it? Well, the best way to describe arbitration is privatised family law litigation. Right. Privatised property litigation, because at the moment, well, you've never been able to arbitrate parenting disputes. So only, only property and financial, you know, like spouse and maintenance disputes are able to be arbitrated so it's like looking at the health system and seeing public hospitals that are where you can attend and get treatment for free and wait for a long time mm. and private hospitals where you pay for it but if you decide that you're willing to pay for it and you can if you're yes. lucky enough to be able to then you'll get a quicker service faster service and arbitration family law arbitration is exactly the same as that yeah. it's a system that's been set up uh, through amendment to the Family Law Act that establishes this process that sits beside and as an adjunct to effectively the family law system that's run through the family courts. Mm -hmm. mm. Sounds like it's essentially a privatised judgment. Yeah, yeah. It's, <clears throat> the beauty of family law arbitration is that it's all consensual, right? Mm. So you cannot take a matter to arbitration or have a matter sent to arbitration without the consent of the parties involved. Part of that consensual process is, of course, that the parties, once they agree between themselves, let's just say a former married couple, a husband and wife, through their solicitors, although it doesn't have to be, because I know arbitrators who have been prepared to arbitrate people's disputes even without legal representatives involved. Mm. I, don't, I don't do that. But, you do earn but, your money, I imagine. <laughs> you would. <laughs> having been a judge and having spent many a day with litigants in person in my court, I choose not to arbitrate litigants in person. Fair enough. With, with respect to them. Yeah. Um, so they get together with their solicitors. Usually it'd be the solicitors, one or, one or both of the solicitors who propose it. Mm -hmm. And say, so, well, we could take this matter to arbitration. And so then they'll agree on that. Say they're in the court process already, someone's commenced proceedings in the court, they can ask or tell a judicial officer at the court, so a judge or even one of the registrars these days, mm -hmm. we, we've agreed that we want to take this matter to arbitration. So they can get a referral order pursuant to 13 capital E of the Family Law Act, mm -hmm. which sends them off to arbitration effectively, mm -hmm. or they can agree to just simply do it privately and not not based on a referral order. So mm -hmm. there's two types. What's the difference or the benefit? There is a difference. 13E, and it's all set out in uh, Section 10, capital L of the Family Law Act, mm -hmm. but 13E referred, court-ordered referred arbitration, limits what an arbitrator can do. 
to deciding matters under Part 8 of the Act and the de facto part, the de facto relationships part of the Act as well. So if you, for example, want to have a property settlement dispute where you will seek a superannuation splitting order, you have to have a private arbitration because under 13E, the arbitrator doesn't have the power to make a superannuation splitting order. But basically, when parties agree to take a matter to arbitration, they then can choose their arbitrator. It's got to be by agreement, of course, Mm -hmm. but they can then choose their arbitrator. And across the arbitration practice space, there are many, many accredited family law arbitrators of varying experience. And so seniority, experience, price entry points. Mm -hmm. So people will always find an arbitrator to suit the complexity of the dispute they have and their, their budget. They then get together with the arbitrator and they nut out an arbitration agreement. You have to have, because it's all consensual, it's contractual effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so the arbitrator and the solicitors and clients and even barristers, if they want to get them engaged at an early stage, will have a directions hearing and a discussion about the terms of the agreement. Mm-hmm. For example, what I do is I send out a draft of the agreement that I, my standard sort of agreement. Mm-hmm. And so have a, have a look at that, consider that. And when we have this first meeting, we can talk about the provisions in that draft and whether there's any that you would like to see different. You mm-hmm. know, Ultimately, you agree on all the terms mm-hmm. and you sign off on that agreement and then that binds you to the process. Right. All right. And one of the things that you can agree upon is the flexibility of the process because arbitration isn't always governed in the same way that litigation in the court is by rules of evidence and formality. So an arbitration can be as formal or informal in those in that sort of context as is agreed between the parties and the arbitrator. You can agree to have an arbitration done on the papers. Now, I'll give you a good example of that, Sarah. The Queensland Legal Aid Office has been successfully running an arbitration on the papers program, one of the only ones in Australia. Again, Queensland, I was saying to you before, is the innovator, the leader. We are. Yeah. And, Go Queensland. And this has been, Queensland Legal Aid Office has been successfully running this program since 2001. Wow. So in small value property settlement cases where the people can't afford lawyers and legal aid office will at least be, they'll agree that in this particular case they'll advance sufficient funding to provide this arbitration on the papers service for the for the parties right i'm on the panel I'm, I'm of course the, you are I'm on the panel and I'm, <laughs> I'm currently in the middle of doing one you know meet the people in the first instance the legal aid office just sends you all the documents mm-hmm. after they've all signed up to the to this particular program and i then have a read through all the material decide that I want some either more documentation or answers to particular questions, send that back to them, I get those. Then I decide if I want to hear oral submissions from them. Then after that, I write the award, send it back to them. So that's arbitration on the papers, and that can be done privately, not just through the legal aid office as well. Or you can decide to have a full hearing where you have full cross-examination and oral submissions and the like, just as if you're in court. And I've done several of those too. Yeah, right. The other, the good thing about it is the flexibility also surrounds venues, for example. I was about to ask about yeah. that, yeah. I had the pleasure of arbitrating a matter in the boardroom of a firm of solicitors at Coolangatta overlooking the beach. 
Wow. So it sounds like as an arbitrator, you can be fairly interventionist. Do you give advice? No, no, you don't give advice. You act effectively as a private judge. Right. So you don't give advice. No. It depends on the type of arbitration that is agreed upon between um, the parties and you, the arbitrator. Mm. Uh, I've run some like when I was on the court. So mm-hmm. I act just like I did when I was a judge. Mm-hmm little bit less formality mm-hmm. but um, you can ask some questions for clarification just like judges do mm-hmm. when when they're um, presiding over a case yeah but uh, arbitration can also be used for interim disputes if parties have a matter before the court and they're in a list and they're waiting a long time and they think that they're in, that an interim application is necessary and they'd like to file that and they think that that might take several months they can just agree to take the interim dispute to an arbitrator. Yeah, right. See, the beauty of it, of the arbitration process is, and once you decide on who you want to arbitrate, you're pretty well set, along with the arbitrator, you set the timetable, mm. and you can have a matter heard and determined as quickly as you can get it ready, right? Mm. Because the, the other benefit of an arbitration is that the arbitrator agrees through the arbitration agreement or the contract to deliver the judgment, which we call awards, Mm -hmm. to deliver the award in writing within a specified time. And generally it's 28 days from the end of the hearing. What I always do is when when I list an arbitration and hear it, I always block out a couple of days in my calendar straight after. So I write it. Immediately. Yeah. There's a benefit in that, Sarah, too, because the arbitrator doesn't get paid till the arbitrator delivers the award. <laughs> right, okay. But the, the parties, you put in your agreement, the parties have to make sure the money is in trust. Right. Because part of the agreement, and there's a requirement in the regulations, that when you do an arbitration agreement, you have to actually set out in there how much it's going to cost. And people know when they're going into an arbitration hearing that they won't have to wait longer than 28 days to get their decision. You can't say that about anyone who takes a matter to court. No. I know there's a protocol at the court, or most courts these days, that uh, there's an expectation that judgments are delivered within three months. But right. Still. We all know that that doesn't always happen. No. So can I ask just by way of clarification, can you elect to resolve a dispute by way of arbitration without having commenced proceedings? Is it something you yes. can elect to yes. do? Yes, I can tell you about that. I, last year I did an arbitration where the two solicitors in the northern suburbs of Brisbane here had clients who couldn't agree on the percentage division mm-hmm. and uh, they had a mediation and couldn't agree mm-hmm. and they hadn't commenced proceedings. Either, neither side had commenced proceedings in the court. And the two solicitors got on well enough to say, well, let's just take this to arbitration. So they contacted my chambers. I sent out a draft of my arbitration agreement to them and I said, you know, this is what I propose. And they signed it, <laughs> sent it back to me. And um, we listed it for a hearing on a time that was suitable for them. We did it in the Inns of Court next door in the Bar Association rooms. It was about six weeks after they'd contacted me. They agreed between themselves on the on the directions mm-hmm. for the timetable for filing and exchanging affidavits and, yeah, right. um, and they both had barristers representing them who yeah. appeared before me uh, they had i had to wait for them to notify me about one aspect of whether they'd reached an agreement or not yes they got their decision a week after the hearing so that was all done and dusted for that couple within eight weeks of them agreeing that they'd take the matter to arbitration yeah. then what happened sarah is pursuant to the family law act you can register the award right 
with the court and after that it becomes an enforceable as if it was a decree of the court. Right. So if there's any enforcement issues, enforcement is undertaken through the court. So I'm assuming then you would have the same benefits in terms of transfer of property as well as if you had a court order? Yep. Transfer of property, CGT rollover relief pursuant to, I can't name the section of the tax act. Oh, I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I only read it earlier this morning. Yes, it's you dead. get CGT rollover relief in the same way it's provided for in the tax act. And... Although this is another area where we're hoping that some amendment will give absolute clarification in respect of uh, stamp duty relief as well right. in the transfers. But in Queensland, most particularly, we, we have had um, correspondence through Flipper with the um, stamps office and they've made clear that if you register an award, they'll apply the stamp duty r- relief in the same way yes. that they would any other court ordered yeah. transfer of property so, yes so those things are are okay right good to hear yeah so one of those things that sort of in your experience keep lawyers from suggesting it as a resolution maybe. oh well there's sort of fear of the unknown yes for a lot um but also like people raise things like that stamp duty issue mm-hmm. people at least in queensland should have no concerns about them the stamp duty relief not being available, provided the order's registered. Yes. But there are other things like consent. Particularly in Sydney, there were some suggestions last year that parties can withdraw their consent at any stage and then the process is off. And so you wouldn't want to take your clients to litigation if the other side could just withdraw their consent at any stage before the awards handed down. That's put a few people off. But, um, is that how it works in Queensland? Well, there's been some judicial views expressed right. that at least the board of AFLAM, all of those of us on the board of AFLAM and the arbitration subcommittee of AFLAM don't agree with. We take the view that uh, once consent is affected through the signing, the execution of an arbitration agreement, that it can't be withdrawn. Right. right? Or if one party unilaterally says, I'm not going to participate in this arbitration anymore, then they can be subject to or you know, that risk of a default award being made in the same way that default orders can be made in the court if, if a person just fails to turn up and participate in the process. We're hoping that some clarification or confirmation of that being correct yes. might actually be um, part of the statutory amendments that perhaps might come through sometime this year. The other thing that sort of scares people away or or, or is a disincentive to the use of arbitration, the things like I said to you before, um, the arbitrator doesn't have power to make an order that binds a third party. Right. Or to join a third party. Even if you sign them up to the agreement? Even if you sign them up, yeah. Some solicitors say, well, why would I bother? Just what happens if we need to bring in a third party? So why would I bother? But in cases where it's clear, like, you know, it's just a husband and wife yes. with a fairly straightforward, dare I say, house and garden type property division, then there's, there's no reason to worry. Any sort of final takeaways? One of the tips that I've been giving recently, whilst this dichotomy exists between 13E referred arbitration and private arbitration... Which is confusing in itself. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit. But I have been encouraging solicitors who might be contemplating or talking about going down the arbitration path, particularly when they've already commenced proceedings, if that's already happened, I've been encouraging them to 
say to the registrar or the senior judicial registrar or the judge that's dealing with their matter on the day that they're saying, well, we want to take this to arbitration. Yes. To issue the idea of a 13E referral order. Right. But to say to the registrar or the judge, we don't want you to make a 13E order. We just want to take this to private arbitration because we appreciate that the private arbitrator has a greater jurisdiction. Right. Particularly in respect of super splitting and the like. Yes. Uh, so can you please not make a 13E order, but just note that we are going off to private arbitration and we anticipate that that process will be over in four months or six months. And if you could please just adjourn our matter and give it a further listing date for mention in four months' time or six months' time. Right. It sounds like 13E is very restrictive. There's another way around it too. If there has been a 13E order yes. and people come to arbitrators and say, well, we've come pursuant to a 13E order, but we actually do want a super splitting order, what do we do? We just simply say to the solicitors, take the matter back with a consent order to discharge the 13E order. Right. Getting all the inside tips. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's easily enough done. Yes. And the National Arbitration List management judge, Justice Wilson, who's based in Melbourne, is apparently very accommodating with agreeing to discharge 13E orders that have been made when parties realise that they actually need the extra jurisdiction or powers that are available to a private arbitrator. Yes. That's the best tip. That is, it's a fantastic tip, if I may be so bold. Yeah. To finish up, if (laughs) I may ask a would you rather question. A would you rather question? Yes. Yeah, go on. Would you rather have all of the photos on your phone leaked or all of the text messages on your phone leaked? Gee, that is a (laughs) surprising question. I think I would prefer, (laughs) if I can put it that way, Yes. I I would prefer all the photos on my phone to be leaked. And why is that? Uh, I'm very proud of all the photos on. How about I put it this way? I'm very proud of all the photos on my uh, on my phone. Do I have to release them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have to choose one or the other. So that's, that's and, and happening. I suppose it also begs the next question, which is, aren't you proud of your text messages? <laughs> yes, exactly. I wasn't going to ask that. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on the briefcase. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Crowell, and this is the briefcase. Bye.